Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. As Americans remain embroiled in conflict overseas, a less visible war is taking place at home, costing countless lives, destroying families, and inflicting untold damage on future generations of America. For over 40 years, the war on drugs has accounted for more than 45 million arrests, made America the world's largest jailer, and damaged poor communities at home and abroad. And for all the drugs, for all that, the drugs are cheaper, purer, and more available today. The film is called The House I Live In. The filmmaker is Eugene Jarecki. He's directed the film on the war on drugs. Uh, remarkable documentary. Um, and Eugene Jarecki is here with us today on Film School. Welcome to Film School. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, make this film. What was the sort of genesis uh, of making The House I Live In? Well, growing up, particularly as I did in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, I felt, I think like a lot of Americans, I expected that there would be tremendous gains for black America in the wake of the movement. And I grew up, for a lot of reasons having to do with my family, I grew up with a lot of linkages to the black community. And um, I came from progressive Jewish parents and grandparents who had fled Nazi Germany on the one hand and uh, Tsarist Russia on the other hand. So I had grown up knowing that the struggle for civil rights in America was for Jews a very important struggle, and that we saw black Americans, for example, as um, as sort of brothers in struggle. And so it was that in the 1970s, um, I started to notice that something was wrong, that something was blocking black progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, today we have a black president and we have many black celebrities who've made tremendous contributions to American life, but we shouldn't fool ourselves for the masses of black people. Um, the leading indicators, political, economic, social, uh, about black life are very, very grim. And I started to see that actually at quite a young age. And it stayed with me probably over 20 years or so. And uh, at a certain point, it became clear to me I wanted to make a movie about it because I wanted to understand what was getting in the way of black progress. And um, the, uh, you know, the, the more time I spent on the question, the more I saw that how much the mass incarceration of black Americans was playing a part in undermining the black community. And, of course, how did that happen, that mass incarceration of black Americans? It came with the drug war. And so it was that my film uh, became a film ultimately about the drug war as the primary culprit in obstructing the progress of black Americans. I think it's important, and uh, I don't want it to get too bogged down in um, the minutiae of the history but I think it's important to point out where sort of the modern genesis, and because you can go back to the 1890s or, 18, or the 19th century and into the early part of the 20th century and, and see the, the uh, drug war being played out. Uh, but the modern version of it is it goes back to Richard Nixon in 1968 <clears throat> after he was elected president. If, if, correct me if this is wrong, when he declared a war on drugs. But what I didn't know, and I found out in your film, uh, The House They Live In, that there was, in fact, a component, two-third component part, at least to the funding, for treatment. Tell us a little bit about sort of the genesis and then how things quickly sort of shifted into the prison option uh, around the time of this Nixon's second term. Well, um, or, 
the thing to really understand is, sure, it was Richard Nixon who declared the war on drugs and sort of left us with his legacy of being tough on crime, because in 1968, Nixon made crime a national campaign issue for the first time, really, in American life. And so it was that he got elected as a crime fighter, but he didn't rule as a crime fighter. Um, he was, uh, as president, you are correct to say that of his entire drug budget, he spent two-thirds of it on drug treatment and only one-third on law enforcement. And so, in fact, in practical terms, he knew that law enforcement and interdiction were both limited in their impact, but that he saw tremendous value in treatment. But he was a political animal, you know, uh, to the end. And Richard Nixon also knew that talking um, sort of uh, compassion-based, treatment-based approaches um, on the airwaves was not going to get him um, reelected in the way the tough on crime rhetoric had done in 1968. And so, knowing better as he did, he nonetheless went out on the campaign trail and um, made it loud and clear that he was a tough on crime warrior and that that was the mold. And of course, he won with a landslide in '72. And so, in many ways, the die has been cast since then. American politicians got that memo and have never let go of it, that being tough on crime is a way to win elections and hold public office. And uh, we need to disabuse ourselves of that now. And I think it's easier because the war on drugs has been such an abject failure on every level. There's not one success measure you can find. So I think it's easier now to sort of retake stock of this and rethink it. But it has not been the case for decades now. That is absolutely... um solid rock solid in terms of political advice having been in the political arena uh unfortunately um not myself but i how many times have i been on the other side of a campaign that is is invoking this fear-mongering that in order to address these social issues we just have to be tougher on people who are committing crimes and therefore will be uh, more likely to uh, solve these, which is, you're right, as you said, completely wrong. Uh, I'm going to quickly point to some of these um, statistics you you mentioned in the film. That For the past 40 years, we've spent over a trillion dollars in this war on drugs. We have, a, and that accounts for over 45 million arrests. Currently, the United States is the jailer the number one jailer in the world, 5% of the population and 25% of the prison population. And the t- statistics just kind of cascade down from there. What, it's just, it, it's, it's just overwhelming. Um, tell us, let's, so let's start breaking this down a little bit. There's a number of component parts to this. Uh, the political side of it, uh, the enforcement side. Tell us a little bit about the kind of corrosive impact that the continued war on drugs is having on our law enforcement uh, agencies? Well, you see it at all levels. I mean, I went, out, I went across the country to about 25 states looking to talk to people at all levels of the drug war. So I especially wanted to talk, of course, I wanted to talk to drug dealers and drug users and family members and mm-hmm. community members. But I also wanted to talk to people on, on the law enforcement side, from cops to prosecutors, lawyers, judges, jailers, wardens, and everybody in between, because I knew that um, the best way to uh, explore this system was to hear from the people themselves about their own stories and about their own perspectives on how it all works. And what I found, to my uh, amazement, was how many people on the inside believe it doesn't work and wanted to talk to me very, very passionately about their perception of where the, the, the dysfunction lies. 
and it's it's a it's an amazing thing you get to see in the film. You see policemen from the uh, you know from the driver's seat of their patrol car uh, talking about the you know futility of making cheap drug arrest after cheap drug arrest weekend week in and week out watching the same people come through the system unhelped unimproving and the rest and then you talk to um and they, they ultimately question what they're doing and they also know that it's in some way weakening their commitment to public safety because all that obsession with cheap drug arrest of course comes at the cost of solving other crimes solving more serious crimes the stuff we really need to be worried about rape robbery murder and so forth yeah. And in a city like Baltimore, as David Simon, who created The Wire and is in the yeah. film, talks about, you know, this obsession is absolutely warped the way policing works, and it's compromised the way police are seen by their communities, et cetera. So then you go into the jails, and you find that the corrections people, and actually the next stop, actually, is the courts. You see that the judges and the courts tell you that their hands are tied, and that once the police bring these people to them, they end up having to give them sentences they don't decide on. Congress has pre-decided what a certain amount of drugs get somebody. And as a judge said to me at one point when he had a in front of him a guy with a certain number of grams of crack who was going to get a certain what's called mandatory minimum sentence, and it's not, uh, the judge has no role in determining that. It's a congressional statute. Um, he said to me, you know, these laws are so stupid. They so strip us judges of our authority that, frankly, this kid who I'm dealing with today, he could have won the Medal of Honor yesterday, and I couldn't give him a different sentence today. Yeah. Um, he could have he could have uh, saved a grandmother from a burning building at, at risk to his own life, and I couldn't give him a different um, sentence today. I can't take anything into account, as you would think a judge is supposed to do when you entrust them to have that kind of discretion. So all of that was very harrowing, and then I went into the prisons where I found remarkable wardens and jailers, corrections officers, up and down the, the chain of command saying to me, we are here on the inside and we see firsthand what these draconian and absurd uh, drug laws create, which is a flood of human beings that come and overflow, overflood our facilities. And um, at the end of the day, we end up swamped with these people. We can't do anything for them or about them because we don't have the money in our programs to help them avoid recidivism. And so we just watch it repeat. Um, tragically, inexorably, and um, it's the tough-on-crime politics of this country that generates this obsession with quick-fix law enforcement, rather than looking holistically at drug abuse as an addiction as a as a public health matter. And so I just saw this up and down, and the, the widespread testimony of critique was what struck me so deeply, and actually is very inspiring, too, because it tells you that this will change, because if that many insiders are against it, soon enough it loses its momentum. Yeah, and that is an important part. And um, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Eugene Jarecki, the director of The House I Live In. I want to point them also to the website, which is called thehouseilivein.org. It gives you an opportunity to not only find out about the film, but also to find out ways in which you can be proactive in uh, raising your hand, raising your voice um, in um, uh, to uh, bring about some change on this incredible monumental issue that's facing this country, uh, really hollowing out so much of um, not only um, law enforcement, some of the pillars of, of society are literally being undermined by this um, law enforcement as well as different communities. Um, uh, there's, it's just, uh, okay, anyway. So, uh, and I also, the film does a terrific job, um, Eugene, of 
showcasing these people uh, like Mike Carpenter, um, who is a correctional officer in in Oklahoma, um, the sheriff, uh, what, um, lost his name in front of me right here. Um, uh, Marshall Curley. Marshall Curley, who's just uh, as honest as you can imagine. I think is is refreshing to hear his voice. Uh, uh, who's yeah. in, in New Mexico talking about, and then all, and also the judge Mark Bennett, um, just uh, terrific to hear um, people talk about this in an honest way. Yep. Um, and also the film is opening here in Los Angeles today, uh, October twelfth. It's opening up in uh, Santa Monica and Pasadena. I'll get into the particulars after the interview, but uh, um, want uh, everyone to know. But the house I live in dot org is a terrific. Um, uh, place to go. Now, we've talked about law enforcement and, and the judicial system, which is being affected by this. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of the money side of this, and, and uh, it touches on this as well. The correctional institutions that we have created uh, in the last 30 or 40 years, uh, private prisons, which are also having a hollowing effect on our law enforcement. I, just to touch on that, what does the prison sure. prison industry now private prison industry. It's a big business, is it not? It's, it's very often referred to as a prison industrial complex, to borrow the term from Eisenhower, military industrial complex. And what does that really mean? What it means is we have a system of industrialized mass incarceration in America. We have vast a vast array of industries that profit um, from the incarceration of our fellow human beings. So what do you make of that? I mean, you have basically, you know, we think of it as the private prisons and how evil that is that a private, that, you know, that private interests should uh, be profiting at the expense of people. But it's not just private prisons. Even in the public system, there are company after company after company that rely upon a steady flow of human beings uh, to make their living. And there are thousands and thousands and millions of employees of this system whose livelihoods depend upon that steady flow. And those are people who could have been employed by any number of other ways that you could deal with drugs. But instead, we dealt with them as a criminal matter, so all those people are needed to man our overflowing jails. But if you had treated this as a health matter, you have jobs for tons of people as well, as they do in other countries where they treat this as a health matter rather than a criminal matter. And we spend, you know, we have spent a trillion dollars in 40 years. There's no way we would have spent that on an effective system of, re- of, of rehabilitation. And so when we're talking about nonviolent people who invariably in this system get charged as if, as if they were violent people, right. um, of course it, it fills our jails and therefore creates that much more of a demand uh, for, for it's the same as making children into grown-ups in order to incarcerate them. We're just trying to find ways to, uh, we're really just trying to find ways to, to create a pretext for more and more incarceration because our friends in Washington uh, are all too often in the pocket of powerful economic interests who want them to do their bidding. And a large industrial driver in this country is uh, reliant upon a steady flow of human beings. And so we see, lo and behold, more and more laws that put more and more people behind bars for wackier and wackier reasons, and very often for longer and longer sentences, often outpacing the sentences we have for violent crimes. I mean, to give you an example, the woman in Florida who a few weeks ago uh, was about to be abused by her husband, and who had been a serial abuser of her, and she, in response to the risk of this, fired a warning shot in the air to scare him off. Uh, discharging a firearm in uh, Florida in that way carries a mandatory minimum penalty of 20 years. And so she was given a 20-year sentence. Fascinatingly, had she simply taken her gun, pointed it at him, and shot him and killed him, she would have been given 15 years. Because our laws in this country have become so 
warped and broken by all of the political pressures that can, that sort of disfigure them, that very often we don't stop to reconcile what's really going on and does it make sense. No. And so we find in a situation like that that it absolutely doesn't make sense. And the same is true in California, where the three strikes law of California, which thankfully, thankfully, is going to be uh, reconsidered in this, this November on the ballot with Prop 36. But as it stands right now, and maybe a lot of your listeners don't, maybe they don't, in California, the um, the three strikes laws, most draconian in the country, under which a person can spend the rest of their life in jail for a third strike that is petty or nonviolent, mm-hmm. as uh, as innocent as it were as stealing a slice of pizza or stealing denture cream, two actual cases. Mm-hmm. And so, at the end of the day, the bad news is this has put thousands of people behind bars for life who should not have been. The good news is Prop 36 simply says that going forward. Um, the, the third strike that puts somebody in jail for the rest of their life, if it's going to do that, should have to be serious or violent to do that. Yeah. And this will have a market in, impact on the prison population. It will have a market impact on making law enforcement more fair. It's why you see D.A. Cooley and Bratton and others speaking supportively of this, because at the end of the day, it's smart law enforcement, and it is also uh, more humane. If somebody doesn't care about any of that, if all you're caring about is your, is, you know, the the, the fiscal uh, uh, matters about California, well, it'll save California $150 million That's to right. change that law right. uh, per year. And wouldn't every state in the country like to save that kind of money? So I think what we'll see, uh, you know, California voters are currently polling at about 80% where they really support this change in the law, which means they see fairness uh, as a possibility and they're looking to support it. And I think everyone who uh, is even contemplating voting has to make sure they vote for Prop 36. And, you know, what will come from that is a change that could be heard across the country, making our our laws more fair and making this three strikes epidemic that was launched many years ago um, start to abate. Because at the end of the day, this country bought into, we drank a Kool-Aid called tough on crime, as if that solves something, when in fact all it's done is make everything worse. Tough on crime has produced a situation where in 40 years we have spent a trillion dollars had 45 million, that's right, 45 million drug arrests. That's right. And for all that, we've put 2.3 million people in jail, become the world's largest jailer, and what do we have to show for it? Drugs are cheaper, purer, more available today than ever before, and used by younger and younger people. It could not have failed on more levels. It has failed on every level. And so we would hope that California, which was a big state in leading us into some of the more tough-on-crime legislation in this country, might actually be the state that begins to lead us out towards something that's not tough-on-crime, but maybe more smart-on-crime. That's right. And, and just to pile on a little bit on the statistics, that slice of pizza is costing the America, the uh, California taxpayers about a million dollars by the time you factor in how much it costs to incarcerate someone with escalating right. health care costs. That one particular prisoner is going to cost the state of California over a million dollars for that slice of pizza. Yeah. This is madness. In, in, since, the, uh, late, uh, since the 80s, the, the Cal- state of California has built 22 prisons and one university. This is madness. This is absolute madness. I realize talking to you, Eugene, that I could spend the next two hours talking to you about this. This is a very dense film, The House I Live In, in the sense that there's a lot of information, but told in in the most humane and humanistic sort of way in the sense of telling stories which illustrate so many of these different issues. And we've got to—I'm unfortunately running out of time here, but we haven't had— we haven't even touched on the cultural, the, the history of incarceration of minorities, 
um, some of the, there's so many things that are related to this. What I just keep saying is an insane policy, uh, but a great way to find out about it and to, uh, go in armed with all the information you'll need to make the right decision is in your film and and also at the website thehouseiliveinorg Oh well, um, just real quick, uh, just to, uh, to end. Um, what's been the reaction? It's been opening across the country. It did very well at Sundance and other film festivals. Are you starting to hear from people in the sort of political establishment and and around and other places? Are you getting a reaction that you expected or unexpected? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that before we go. Yeah, the reaction has been remarkable. It opened this past Friday in New York and has been very successful and very well reviewed, thankfully, which is, of course, helpful. And it's also been, <clears throat> you know, it will be, will open this Friday. It also opens at the Sun, at the Sunset Five in, uh, in uh, Hollywood on Friday, as right, well as right. Monica and Pasadena and elsewhere. So we'll right. see that hopefully California audiences will come out as they have here in New York, where I'm speaking to you. It's just so important because a movie like this is sort of made or broken in these opening days where the country gets the sense that, um, this is a zeitgeist issue, and it's so important that that that, that be made the case, because, of course, the major politicians aren't going to talk about it. Right. Once upon a time, politicians loved to talk stuff on crime because it sold tickets, and it got them, uh, you know, lots of lots of pizzazz. The reality is now that the war on drugs has failed so miserably yeah. that politicians want to talk. It's the last thing on earth they want to talk about. So only we, the public, can be talking about this grotesque miscarriage of justice that's going on on our watch and forcing the reform of it to be a central national issue. So we're extremely hopeful that audiences will lead the way in many ways to getting um, the nation to, 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 to look at this again and really rethink this and come to the view that I've come to, which is just enough is enough. Yeah. This abuse has gone on too long. It's, it's made us the laughing stock of the world in terms of our criminal justice system. It's unfair, and it's completely dissonant with our founding principles. You can't have a democracy where the 400 richest people in the country have more money than the bottom 130 million, yeah. and where bank a real statistic where bankers can steal billions from American taxpayers, including grandmothers who now can't eat, and they get nothing but a slap on the hand in the press. And meanwhile, a 15-year-old kid, while we're speaking right now here in New York City or in L.A., uh, is being searched by a cop who will find an ounce of something that kid couldn't get from a doctor, and that kid will spend 10 to 20 in jail. I mean, that we live in that country is so shocking that we should all devote every piece of energy that we have free uh, to us at all uh, to the reform of this until we finally get this scorch off our off off of our country and start living again. I couldn't agree more, Eugene Jiraki, uh, between this remarkable film, The House I Live In, and Why We Fight, and so many of the other work that you've done. It's just an honor to have you on here, and um, I urge, well, well, we'll turn out. We will be there this weekend, and, and this is not an issue that's going to go away. And, it's, and by the way, for those listening, the consequences are real. They are going to get worse in terms of our the allocation of resources in this country, how we go about uh, uh, making social and political policy in this country. These are real consequences, and they will have um, detriment to, to all for generations to come. Uh, again, thank you so much for being here, Eugene Jarecki, and I, uh, all the best to you on this and everything else you're working on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. 
I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.